Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Susan Greylock Usum, a host of the New Books Psychology Channel, and today we'll be speaking with Richard Sklove about his newest book, Escaping Maya's Palace, Decoding an Ancient Myth to Heal the Hidden Madness of Modern Civilization, which just won a 2023 Gold Nautilus Book Award. Richard Sklove has been a senior staff member at the Mind and Life Institute, co-founded by the Dalai Lama. He earned his PhD in political theory at MIT and held a postdoc fellowship in economics at UC Berkeley. The American Political Science Association honored his book, Democracy and Technology, as the best in its field, and he's a fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Welcome to the New Books Network, Richard. Thank you, Susan. Well, first, tell us a little bit just about you, because you um, you work in a very interesting space as a scientist, social theorist, but also a longtime spiritual um, seeker. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how those pieces merge together for you? They they emerged. I mean, uh, I grew up in a family that was pretty agnostic, atheistic, non-observant Jewish, but uh, spiritual experiences, I think, started wandering into my life in childhood and, and more in, in adolescence. And uh, I, I, I find myself combining mystical and highly intellectual rational elements that our culture doesn't usually create a lot of opportunities to integrate those two aspects. If you want to do one or the other, there's plenty of space for it. But I happen to be a PhD graduate student at MIT in political science when I was 28, when I had a spontaneous Kundalini awakening, which was a very dramatic spiritual experience that put me in a kind of an altered state for six weeks. And and that just means that I've had, you know, I've had profound spiritual and mystical experiences. And that was in the context of being a student in the most ultra rational institution on the planet. And somehow having to make that work for me, even though the external environment wasn't set up for the, for those two aspects of the self to come together. Well, and you mentioned you had spiritual experiences as, in your early childhood. What was the context for those? Uh, you know, there it's just I think the same one that many people do. Nothing, no angels or or you know, no no dramatic magical things. It's more just I have memories of being in a tree and watching the sunlight streaming through or seeing dust motes floating in a beam of light and just I'm being, you know, three or four or five and just the simple experience of magical dancing light was for me a numinous experience, even though it, it didn't come garbed in angels with wings and harp music. <laughs> That's such an interesting um, thing to hear because I, I had a similar experience as a child um, with a tree watching a leaf spiral that has really kind of resonated through my life. And I've heard other, you know, say that about childhood experiences, particularly with trees and simple, a simple childhood experience that was deeply spiritual and 
carried a person through their life. It's really interesting. Well, um, such a big book to dive into, but let's start just with um, how did the book come about? How did it come to you, the idea to write this complex and fascinating uh, way to look at the Mahabharata? Yeah, well, it... it uh... It came to me by coming to me, meaning I, <laughs> I mean, sort of I, about 20, I, I was able to take an early retirement from one of my careers in my late 40s. And around 2005, I was beginning to have an interest in, in how spirituality relates to economics and and had and was studying buddhist theories of economics and and seeing if i wanted to contribute something there and i gave it up because i just didn't see something original i had to say um mostly the, the those writings were mostly again about how spiritual ethics might guide us to behave differently in economic spheres but uh th this book really er, floated up into my mind during a meditation retreat i was on a nine-day silent meditation retreat and I knew the basic story of an ancient Indian myth called the Mahabharata, but it just floated up into my mind when it shouldn't have, when I should have been saying my mantra and, <laughs> and just been in meditative concentration. Of course, thoughts float up, but in this case, it seemed like a magical special thought that grabbed me. And I was pondering an episode in this ancient myth that suddenly seemed both paradoxical and somehow relevant to understanding peculiarities of the modern world and it was from that little inspiration that that a, a kind of an ambitious book project floated into my life <laughs> and pr and prior to that i think i read that you had only really read like uh children's versions of it you really hadn't died weren't deep into it at that point when it came to you in this way no, I mean, let's say for the for for people listening, I just want to back up and say you're you're mentioning this ancient text called the Mahabharata, but my book is not primarily about the Mahabharata. My book is primarily about what went wrong with modern civilization over the last four hundred years. But but I reached the conclusion in the course of doing the research that one of the things that went wrong in the modern world is our psychological development got derailed a little bit, a little bit thrown off course by certain external forces in the modern global economy and political economy, that that has sidetracked some of our psychological development in a way that is self-camouflaging. Our psychological development shifted in a way that is self-camouflaged by the alteration in psychological development. And I end up using this ancient myth which is a very peculiar lens for looking at the modern world. Why would you go back 2,000 years? It's because 2,000 years ago, some people figured out the psychological peculiarities that are characteristic of us, and they came out the other end of it and can see it in ways we can't see ourselves. And so this ancient myth gives me a psychological perspective for seeing our psychological disorder that is not distorted by our psychological disorder. That sounds, but and maybe it's worth even just mentioning because you'll probably reference it a little bit. Just give us a synopsis. Many people are probably familiar with the Mahabharata or, or especially the Bhagavad Gita section of it, but could you give a, a simple synopsis of it? as a story, then we can come yeah, back. Yeah. Um, it's, it's the Mahabharata is 
sometimes described as the longest book ever written. It's it's about seven times the length of the Odyssey and the Iliad combined. In English translation, it can be like 4,500 pages. And uh, there's a, it's divided into 18 books, one sliver of which, a piece, there's a small piece of book six of the 18 books of the Mahabharata, that's the Bhagavad Gita, which is a much more famous text in the Western world. Uh, the, the basic story of the Mahabharata it, it's sort of an Iliad kind of story. It's a bit, it's, it's two, two competing clans get into, of cousins get into a, a disagreement about who's going to control a kingdom. And it's basically a story about the conflict between them that's going to culminate in a terribly devastating war uh, and the aftermath of the war. Uh, but I read the whole thing not as on the surface stories. It's basically a story about a war, <laughs> but I see the whole thing as an, an allegory, a coded description of psychological and spiritual development from for, forming and building an ego to transcending that and eventually moving towards spiritual enlightenment. And, uh, so it's as it's as the it's not as the story of the war that it interests me for understanding the modern world. It's as an allegory of spiritual and psychological development because the protagonists in the story, uh, at an early stage in their life, get stuck in a configuration that winds up looking a lot like modern psychology, <laughs> and they get out of it. <laughs> so, how would you describe the modern? Uh, psychosocial predicament that we are in right now. What's, what I'm uh, working out about the modern world, and by modern world, I mean the past, say, since 1500, the past four or 500 years, basically the world of the global economy, um, is that coming into the, as the global economy emerged, it, it disrupted uh, all sorts of prior uh, social relationships and particularly thinned out and destabilized people's relationships with community and one another. And this is really well known, but I'm make building an argument that at the same time, our external circumstances were changing in that way. It altered our trajectories of psychological development. And as the, our social worlds got disrupted, it separated us from the world in certain ways where we, the bound, the psychological boundary that we draw between ourselves and the world in effect effect thickened and became more rigid. We get people develop a sense of greater separation from from the world, uh, which I call uh, great, uh, a sharper ego boundaries were formed, which had a lot of, of profound psycho, psychological and social consequences. I mean, as this wall became that we that people draw became more rigid, as it were, people were sensed themselves as more separate from one another and everything else. There's a sense of emptiness that comes with that. And you see it expressed in uh, in the in Northwest Europe, where the global economy emerged most one of the places that emerged very vigorously. You see it expressed both in people having more intense craving for consumer goods, but also greater propensities to addiction. A lot of the early modern global economy was about producing and just and and moving to Europe uh, addictive stimulants like coffee, tea, sugar, and, and rum. And uh, this, I, that wasn't sort of an accidental craving. I think it's a product of this sharper boundary that made people feel more empty. And so it, that ends up being a, right in there, a rather surprising 
critique, novel critique of capitalism, because our basic story about capitalism that we tell in the modern world is that it's the greatest engine ever created for satisfying our wants and needs because tons of stuff and services get produced and spread around. And we understand there's kind of a, a downside to that because, you know, on the one hand, all this stuff gets produced, but there's some downside. There can be, it's recognized that capitalism can involve a certain amount of injustice and exploitation. It's very disruptive, which can be hard for people to adjust to their environmental downsides. We know all that, but most of us have said, well, yeah, there's an upside and a downside, but all these goods, you know, and wonderful things that are being produced provide so much satisfaction that it's more than worth it. So we'll cope with the downside because we we're getting all the goodies. And my book is sort of saying not quite true because the idea that we're the capitalism is this engine for this great engine for satisfying our wants is a bit of an illusion. It is a fabulous engine for producing lots of stuff, but it's also producing the psychology of emptiness that means that no matter what we get, we never can find enduring contentment at it. And so in that sense, capitalism's not producing contentment. It's producing the impossibility of finding contentment. Uh, And so it's that kind of potentially shifts your evaluation of the costs and benefits of capitalism because we sort of say, well, there's an upside, the downside. I'm saying upside's a little bit of an illusion because we're not actually getting contentment. We're getting the impossibility of contentment. We're getting the opposite of what's promised. This is a system that causes the problem. It, it promises it's going to end. The endless loop of it is playing out and materializing. Yeah, and then it happens to have further downsides. I mean, one downside is of this psychological configuration is that we're more prone to, we can't get satisfied. That's a basic problem. But we're also prone to all sorts of mental illnesses, but not just there's there's greater proneness to addiction, but also to depression and anxiety and, and other mental ills, which also bring along all sorts of physical ills that, that flow out of those. I mean, does it all contributes to the increased, increased incidence of cancer and heart disease and obesity and diabetes. And uh, also, this psychological configuration contributes to the big macro challenges that, that we face in the modern world. So, you know, to, to, it feeds out in various ways into climate change, social alienation, the, the allure of authoritarian populism. All of this is being fed into by this psychology, which has the further odd property that this more intensely egoic self-bounded psychology, whatever it wants to do, it doesn't want to transcend that state. It's resistant to further psychological and spiritual development because further psychological and spiritual development would be relaxing that boundary and moving beyond strong ego identification but the ego perceives that as annihilation because it's threatening to the ego. <laughs> uh, and so this psychological configuration that the global system puts us into, it, it isn't particularly healthy to our well-being, either at the personal level or the social level, and it also makes us resistant to further self, self-realization. <laughs> So the natural uh, processes in, psycho- in psychology, like even in Jungian psychology, I mean, the my own orientation, thinking about ego and self, that your your 
putting forth that the actual culture that we're living in, the way it's structured is um, working against that work itself. So the idea of developing a porosity with, um, with your ego and being more in touch with the soul is being, um, we're basically have created a culture around us that is preventing that from happening, the natural evolution of our porousness with soul. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, if you're like me, it sounds like you, if you're either involved with spiritual practices or psych or psychologically based, you know, growth and self-realization practices, it turns out the world is arranged to make sure this will not work. Uh, <laughs> I mean, because it actually depends on it. I mean, I, I should say a little more forcefully because um, the capitalist system is built to it is based on our consumer insatiability. If consumer insatiability isn't there, demand goes down, GDP plummets, and you start to tailspin into an economic depression. So if we didn't have infinite insatiable cravings, we the system would collapse. So it depends on sustaining those cravings to keep the system going, which is to say the system is engineered to make sure that we better not succeed in our self-realization efforts because that would weaken the ego and that would the ego the egoic self-bounding which is the foundation the psychological foundation of the insatiability upon which the economy depends to not collapse so the economy is dependent on the failure of our projects of self-realization and that this culture is a materialization of that own ego struggle that we are facing as humans. And before we lose every listener, maybe we should note that you have you spent a significant part of the book talking about what you call um, soul-friendly structural ecologies. Can you say a little bit about that piece? <laughs> or let's get into that piece a little as a... Uh-huh. I'm not all a doom and gloom guy. I mean, the book starts off as here's how here's how how messed how we're more messed up than we've known, but also oh, here's some ways we could, in theory, we might be able to get out of it. And in particular, I'd say the the most optimistic reading of the book is that I realized that um, a lot of what progress a lot of what progressive political activists try to do in the world people in in uh you know trade union movements and working for social justice or sustainability or for strengthening democracy or peace a lot of what pe people on the progressive side were trying to do would be structural changes that either reduce inequality if in, in in society or that that address the excessive disruptiveness of of capitalism and the way it's it's it, it weakens and attenuates our relationships with each other. Now, progressive groups are doing that not because they're oriented towards advancing our psycho-spiritual self-realization. They're they're doing it because of commitments to values like justice and peace and sustainability. I'm sort of showing that you know what there's an accidental potential byproduct here that would be very very beneficial because the things that those groups want to do to address concerns about sustainability, peace, and justice would have the accidental but desirable side effect of damping down the forces that, that increase the intensity of our ego identification. There's a potential here for bringing our political and spiritual orientations into a tighter integration that would make our own experience in the world more whole and integrated, which is that, you know, if we're normally, we sort of say of, 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 of people who are sort of 
uh, involved with socially engaged spirituality do that because our spiritual ethics tell us we should be doing some good things in the world. And I agree with that, but I'm saying in addition to that, it turns out that the things we want to do in the, in, that we tend to be wanting to do in the world would also make the world friendlier to psycho-spiritual development. And there's a, and then there, there's a way that in advancing our, our progressive spiritual uh, aspirations, we are also creating a world that's friendlier for psychological growth and spiritual growth. So this is a very exciting proposition because it's basically energizing both points of view, that they're mutually beneficial and, and codependent, essentially. That's right. And there's a potential, therefore, for progressive groups to, because they can say that we're accomplishing we could we can potentially contribute to accomplishing more than we realize. We not only could be accomplishing advancing social justice and peace and democracy, but also psychological and spiritual self-realization. And that means that progressive groups have a could make a, a play for more resources, more mobilization of resources and and pe- more recruitment of people to their movements because they can promise greater, more extensive benefits for the individual and society. And this seems like a, a really almost a radical proposition because it seems as though um, psychological and spiritual self-realization is often separated um, from social justice. Or or is that true? Have you found that to be true? Um, I think that varies. I think that there's a certain amount of there's a subset of people involved who are you know involved with the activist causes who are. Uh, spiritually driven and inclined and i think that that's spiritual that's basically can be a source of what what motivates people and also sustains them under difficult challenging circumstances uh but but i think that my argument in a way is saying to people in the world of uh, who are involved with personal growth that there there's um uh, reasons to be if you aren't all politically engaged to get politically engaged because that's actually is instrumental in certain ways to our spiritual and psychological development mm. mm-hmm. i mean the quaker movement comes to mind as an example of a small but mighty movement that had you know significant social justice impact and was um, motivated by spiritual yeah, and, and certainly the civil rights, the, the black civil rights movement was strongly yeah. spiritual. And there's a subset of environment, not all, there's a subset of environmentalists who clearly are animated by a sense that the natural world is sacred. Mm-hmm. How how did writing this book and making these connections affect you personally during the during the work? And I guess I should back up and say this was about, was it? 10 years yeah, in the making I mean, of this I mean, I wrote it over a 10-year period. I'd say it represents seven full years of full-time work. Um, wow. Well, I was, uh, it, it, it was a work, it, it was a work in self-transformation. I mean, writing the book, the book is about, you know, trying to play my part in making the world a better place, but it, but doing it was trying to make me a better person. <laughs> Uh, I found it was mm-hmm. um, the at important phases of the book. I, I went into a mildly altered state where ideas, some of the framing of ideas in the book, some of the creative insights felt strongly like they were pouring in from outside of me. 
So not, I never felt like mm-hmm. it was a, it wasn't a, it was never a channeled enterprise. I never was taking down to hearing voices and taking down dictation, but I would go into what I would sit at my keyboard, go into a mildly altered state and, um, feel in a collaborative relationship with some kind of intelligence beyond myself. You know, if you're a Jungian, that could be the collective unconscious in some way. I, I, it didn't come with a label, so I don't know the source of it. But, but this book is very much a collaborative enterprise. And for me, writing it was an alchemical enterprise in that it was clearly felt growthful and transformational to me to work on it. Mm-hmm. And when we think about this conundrum that you've outlined, how how are you how have you been able to articulate how a person in their individual everyday life is able to actually get out of that loop? Do you, you mean the which which specific the loop of of intense ego identification or? Um... Uh huh. Yeah, yeah. Living in that egoic state and. Um, understanding, you know, getting past that thick boundary and becoming more well, porous. I have, at one level, I have nothing special to contribute to that. I mean, the, the, all the great wisdom traditions teach us spiritual practices that are oriented towards, in some way, moving beyond strong ego identification. So, and I'm, I don't have anything to add to that, except to my, the point we've already, you and I have already covered that beyond the importance of finding your own path for self-realization, whether that's sort of more psychological or spiritual or something else, but find it's realizing that those practices that, that come out of traditions that are thousands of years old from around the world were not designed to be effective in a modern world that is so arranged to strongly intensify and stabilize our ego identification. So what I, what I can add to mm-hmm. it is that beyond whatever you do for your, you know, whatever we choose to do for our personal growth, it, it kind of becomes it, it practically necessary to become engaged in contributing what we can to making the world more friendly to the enterprise of, of psychological and spiritual self-realization. Um, both, both mm-hmm. because it's a, in a way, the highest good there is for us to realize our potential, but also that if, until we do that, the, we're, we're digging deeper, our civilization is digging itself into deeper and deeper macro problems that we can't dig our way out of. Mm-hmm. Have you found that there's um, resistance to the idea that you're bringing forward of um, combining the social critique with psycho um, social development and merging those in this way that uh, you do? Not yet, but that's just because the book isn't out there enough to have flushed out the opposition. Uh, I mean, in a, you know, I'm in this peculiar position where the book is not has not launched quickly. Uh, I mean, it has won an award, and I think it's going to find some footing, but in a way. One of the things I write about in the book is is the ego's resistance to the kind of argument I'm making. I mean, our egos don't want my <laughs> ideas to get out there because they're ego subversive in a in a way that would be existentially threatening to the ego's very happy sovereignty within uh-huh. our psyches. <laughs> and uh, uh-huh. and so this is this 
is resistance is expressed in lots of ways that I articulate in the book. But one of them is that in modern academia, integrating insights, psychological insights lifted from spirituality, as I do, integrating those into conventional scholarship is taboo in in modern academia. Um, it's, it's, yeah. if you do that, it's just, uh, you're, you're going to be written off as a flake and you won't get published and you aren't going to get grants and you aren't going to get hired and promoted. Um, so I, I can do what I do cause I'm an independent scholar. And I get, those sanctions don't reach, don't reach me. But, uh, but, uh-huh. um, in, in a, in a way that means that if my book had launched quickly and was a crazy bestseller right now, that would that would be delightful for me as an author, but it would also prove that the book is wrong, because <laughs> I I mean if, the, if right. the book if the world was receptive to this book, then my, my argument is that the world will cannot be receptive to this book because it's it's arranged to make sure right. that ideas such as I'm working out won't get worked out, and so that would be a refute in a way success would be a refutation. <laughs> Uh-huh, that makes sense. <laughs> that, that doesn't mean that a, that a slow I'm, launch of the book proves it's right, but a fast launch would prove it's wrong. Right. It's, as you're talking, I'm thinking about younger people that I know who I've thought about a lot during these times, um, especially once COVID started and thinking about the global poly crisis that we're in and... Um, and I think about the younger people I'm, I'm in, and I do see, um, well, certainly a high level of uh, social engagement and political activism, and also an increased under, increased yearning to understand the self or the soul or connect into that. And I'm, I'm wondering, from your position, having been a meditator for 40 years and really and holding science and social theory and also your spiritual practice, what how do how do you um well i guess what do you have to say to the younger people who are who are holding all these at once in these uh, accelerated times well <laughs> i think that i i i don't know that i have huge insights cuz i think we're in different world I, they're growing up in a different world than i did i mean i think there is more receptivity um uh in among, among younger people and the worlds they inhabit, I think there is space for integrating uh, more space for integrating spirituality into both people's social and political lives and into academic studies if they're in college or school. I, there, there is more openness to that. So I don't. The way I the struggles I had, I think, will be different. I think the struggles they have is struggling with despair about climate change and certain feet and the decline of democracy and just feeling like the optimism to move forward in this world. But I think the good news is that there is space to bring spirituality into our social and political concerns in a way that is both illuminating to to the social engagement, but also spiritually sustaining. I think it's hard to not despair without a connection to the world of spirit. Including, I'll say that my intellect, there's a famous political, Italian political philosopher named Antonio Gramsci who 
was imprisoned in the 1920s and in prison wrote of uh, pessimism of intellect, optimism of will. And um, my mind, I look at the world and I, and I see tremendous reasons to be pessimistic and it could be hard to get out of bed, but I don't think that my mind is smart enough to believe that pessimism is necessarily warranted because I do think that there are, in addition to the pessimistic forces we see, I also know that there are spiritual forces in play that we don't fully understand and can't fully understand, but that um, I think the world has, a, there's a mystery to it, the whole thing. And I think that there I just have a sense from my spiritual self feels it's not as bleak as my rational mind thinks it is. And how do you hold those two things in your everyday life? How do you maintain that connection to that sense of knowing? Well, it, it, it is a sense of knowing. Of I mean, um, I have pretty strong, I have a very strong intuitive life. And, and I can be aware of my intuitions as distinct from the machinations of my mind. <laughs> I've got a really strong mind, but it's not as strong as it thinks. <laughs> and, and, you know, I just, um, for me, spirituality is not a domain of, of abstract ideas. It's an, it's a lived experience. And when, in, when, it, when I have an intuitive sense that I shouldn't go with my mind's bleakness. That intuitive sense comes with the sense that I should believe the intuition. <laughs> and how has that affected your actual life? The way that the way that it has played out. Uh, intuition that, is the is the, affect- gui- is the guiding force in my life. I mean, the important decisions like the decisions to write this book, <laughs> the, de- the decisions, my important career decisions were all all came to me with strong intuitive hits and it's like you don't have a choice here buddy here's what you gotta do <laughs> mm-hmm. so like leaving a career or spending you know seven or seven to ten years writing a book like this that might not have an audience or a very niche audience has been grounded in a, a sense of trust in your intuition yeah. i mean it, it i i experienced the some of the the, the big the big intuitive hits, there's, there's all sorts of little intuitive hits I get, but the big intuitive hits on what to do with my life come with the, the meta intuition that this is a strong intuition, you should go with it. That it, it, It's sort of, in effect, it feels to me like it's guidance from the gods about what I'm supposed to do and what my mission is. After spending so many years working on this book and bringing it to fruition, how did you... Um... What was your sense of it once it was complete? Was it clear to you that it was done? Um, or did it open up a sense that there was another piece coming mm-hmm. for the work? Uh, both. <laughs> uh, on the one hand, I knew what, I mean, the book was a long time in the writing and I had my, at times my family and friends would just sort of say, are you just dragging this out forever? And no, no, this book has, it will come to an end and I can see the end and it came to the end and I knew it. On the other hand, um, I think that it, completing the book also, uh, as I said, it was a tran- it was a transformative enterprise for me to work on it, and I think it finishing it 
open the door to another phase, a new phase in my personal in transformation efforts. Uh, Can you say a little more about that? Your own personal transformational well, efforts? It's a big, a big, interesting can of worms. Um, over the past year, uh, at, at, with the, the completion of the book was disappointing in the external world. I mean, I was felt tremendous satisfaction in finishing the book, but she, but daunted by how to bring it into the world and how to get, find, get it to the people who I know would want to read it. And that was that was discouraging and actually sufficiently so that it was a little traumatizing for me. And that turned out to be very beneficial. It brought it surfaced traumatic. Uh, it res activated traumas from my childhood that I had not been aware of and and opened a, a, a past year of doing a tr very deep psychological work on surfacing and trying to process childhood traumas that I had been unaware of. And that I, I reading about trauma, I now feel simultaneously, like on the one hand, I sometimes feel like, whoa, there was all this trauma in my early years I didn't understand. And it's handicapped me in my adult life in various ways. I've been prone to depression. It's made me less effective in the world. And that's a sort of a discouragement, but that's something I want to work on. But at the same time, I'm understanding that trauma, early childhood trauma also cracks people open often to the spiritual world. I had thought of my strong experiential spiritual life as sort of idiosyncratic, but I now sort of see that, no, it's both my strong spiritual life and my strong intuitive life. Those are partly products of, of early childhood trauma. So trauma both is the source of some of my most daunting challenges and obstruction, but also the source of my strongest gifts. And this is, um, so this is, this is my, these are all sort of insights I'm working out in the aftermath of writing the book. And that so much relates in a sense to the larger um, piece that you're explaining in the book, this, this interconnection between what's happening in the world and our spiritual engagement and and the need to sort of open them up and bring them more into conversation with each other. I mean, it seems as though you're actually living I, this I, yourself. I, I am, but without guiding, without any <laughs> giant wisdom about how to do it or why. All I know is that it seems to be the case that my mission in this lifetime, I have a bodhisattva impulse. I don't have a bodhisattva's talents, <laughs> but I have the impulse to want to heal the world. And, uh, I just seem to have, um, it just seems to be the case, the way I'm configured that healing myself and healing the world are for me inseparable activities. I can't work on one without the other. Well, we are just about out of time. Is there anything else that you would like to add that we haven't touched on about the book in particular? Uh, no, except, uh, uh, it's a book, uh, I'll just tell people who might want to read it, uh, know that it's really um, five books. It's it's about 200 pages of text, so it's not giant in length, but it covers a lot of terrain. And none of it, what I find reading it myself 
Um, it's funny that when I read it, the part of me reading it is not the one who wrote it. <laughs> and so it's all news to me when I'm reading it because there's some part. Yeah, and I've, some other authors have told me they've experienced it. But I can say that none of the ideas in the book are individually that complicated, but there's a lot of them. And it takes and it just um, it, it just know that it's covering a lot of terrain and be a little patient with yourself. You know, read a bit of it and then feel free to put the book down and let it digest for a little while and then come back to it again. And uh, it's that seems to make it more rewarding for people. Yeah, I think that's worth noting. It's the intricacy in which you're bringing those thoughts together, which is so fascinating. And there are really like helpful diagrams. And it's just a fascinating book. I think you're right. It's like something to digest possibly more slowly. Well, thank you so much for being with us today, Richard. It's been really fascinating to learn more about your book and connecting social engagement and spirituality. This has been a great pleasure, Susan. Thank you. I'm Susan Greylock Yusum, and this is the New Books Network. And I've been speaking with our guest, Richard Sclove, about his newest book, Escaping Maya's Palace Decoding an Ancient Myth to Heal the Hidden Madness of Modern Civilization. Thank you for being with us, and we'll see you next time.